Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. I don't know if you heard this incredible story that was going around about the Ukrainian army cat, Mikhail. Looks like a normal cuddly house cat, but people were calling him the Panther of Kharkiv. Apparently, this cat had been trained to detect lasers projected from the rifles of Russian snipers. Seems that Mikhail the cat spotted those little red laser dots before humans could which allowed Ukrainian freedom fighters to locate and kill four Russian snipers preemptively. Just remarkable stuff. And, and, and tens of thousands of people shared this photo of Mikhail, of this adorable, life-saving hero cat, cradled in the arms of a beaming young Ukrainian soldier. But then somebody said, just wait one fucking minute. What is that patch on the soldier's arm? Is that what I think it is? That looks a lot like an SS logo. Actually, you fools, that is no innocent Ukrainian freedom fighter who you are glorifying. That is a member of the neo-Nazi Azov battalion. You have all been hoodwinked by a cute kitty into boosting actual Nazi propaganda. Well, once I read that, it seemed like a pretty important bit of fact-checking. The original story had already gone viral and was just picking up momentum, so it seemed like the thing to do. I hit retweet on the fact check, sharing it with my followers. And no sooner than I did, somebody else piped up and said, just wait one fucking minute. Idiot. Cats cannot detect snipers. Cats cannot be militarized. Laser cats was an SNL sketch. That's not a real thing. And, uh, yeah. Turns out that photo was four years old, had nothing to do with the current invasion. Don't really know if that cat's named Mikhail. Uh, it was spread around by a shit poster to see how many idiots on both sides 
would fall for it and weaponize it against one another. And that, my friends, is the story of how I accidentally got drawn into the Russian-Ukrainian information war. Look, I was trying to avoid it. You know, I was trying to sit this one out. I don't know much about Russia or Ukraine. I know better. I know how easy it is for someone with a sizable megaphone to do more harm than good with one click of a button. Jesse, I said to myself, I says, just don't tweet. Don't tweet. It is an option. You don't have to tweet. You've got nothing to add to this conversation. I mean, if you must help, if you want to help, just listen and, you know, boost the signal of somebody who does know what they're talking about. And that's how they got me. Now, you'd think after getting burned like that, um, I I would uh, retreat to my earlier position and just shut the hell up about all of this. But it does occur to me that that's kind of an objective of propaganda, of misinformation, of disinformation. It's not just about brainwashing people into accepting a set of false facts. It can also be about just flooding the zone with bullshit to the point where people start to doubt everything and then simply disengage. Well, that might still be an option for me, but it is not an option for our senior producer, Sarah Larnyuk. Sarah is Ukrainian-Canadian, and she's been reporting on Russian disinformation for years. A few years back, she actually traveled to Ukraine to do so. You'll hear some of that reporting today, but you don't have to go to Ukraine to report on the information wars. Bullshit knows no borders. Disinformation campaigns, some of them Russian in origin, have of course been active all over the world, including here in Canada. And as it happens, an old friend of Sarah's is a Canadian cyber sleuth who has made it his mission to investigate and understand the architecture of the information chaos machine. You're going to hear that too. Wait for it. This episode's brought to you by Brendan Shopland, Evan McFadden, Carrie Precht, Pierre Roy, Emily Fitzhenry, Anise Hedari, Taylor Brown Evans, and Catherine. My name is Catherine Clydesdale. I live in Ottawa. I am a climate and animal activist, and I support Canada Land and all their shows because in these very scary and disturbing times, we need investigative reporting we can trust. And a big shout out to senior producer Sarah from the Monday show and Fatma from the backbench for pushing Jesse on the climate crisis. How about a new podcast devoted to solutions for this climate emergency? Disinformation is a word used so much, I feel like it's almost lost all meaning. But for Ukrainians, it became evident about a decade ago that disinformation threatened the very existence of their country. Ukraine had become a testing ground of sorts for modern information warfare. And it's a history that reveals the sophisticated nature of the Russian information chaos machine. A machine that, after demonstrating its extraordinary success in Ukraine, would go on to influence the 2016 American election, change the course of geopolitics, And on a more basic level, it would sow hatred and discord between friends and family, even right here in Canada. This goes far beyond just fake news stories and Twitter trolls. In its essence, the information war in Ukraine set out to create an alternate reality where facts are debatable and public opinion can be played like a fiddle by the Kremlin. But to understand all of that, we have to go back almost a decade, to the fall of 2013. It was then that Ukrainians took to the streets to oppose a move by their president, Viktor Yanukovych, to cozy up, through a series of agreements, to Russian President Vladimir Putin. The Ukrainian president had deliberately scuttled a deal that would have brought Ukraine into the European Union's fold. The widely popular protests are known by one of three names, the Maidan Revolution, Euromaidan, or the Revolution of Dignity. Sorry in advance, but you'll hear all of those words, and they're all interchangeable, and they all mean the same thing. But these peaceful protests, eventually they gave way to a more 
violent uprising that started in early 2014, when extreme police suppression tactics were used against the Ukrainian protesters. Several bloody weeks ended with Ukrainian President Yanukovych being removed from power. Just about five minutes ago, those acting leaders of Ukraine, the parliament, sat down and began a, what is a whole tough series of tasks. They've got to try to form some kind of new coalition government. And then we've also heard from Russia that they want to potentially renegotiate a natural gas deal. This all matters because Russia has enormous power over Ukraine for two reasons, trade and also cheap energy. It was a time of upheaval for the country one that Russia was primed to take advantage of. The cogs of the disinformation machine began to turn. Russian-controlled media outlets did not cast the revolution as one where Ukrainians were fighting for their independence from Russian control and a stronger democracy. No. Instead, they were used as proof that Ukraine is a hellish and lawless society. The violent scenes in Ukraine triggered a strong reaction from abroad. Scenes like this of police attacking protesters and the equal brutality of the protesters against the police. And then the little green men invaded the peninsula of Crimea in the southeastern part of Ukraine. These little green men were soldiers dressed in green camo, but they wore no country's flags and they piggybacked on the confusion of the surrounding local protests. They came in and took over the Ukrainian military bases, and they raised the Russian flag at the Crimean parliament building. But the Kremlin continuously denied that these soldiers belonged to Russia. Here's Simon Ostrovsky's report for Vice at the time. Yeah, they don't want to say anything. They're not wearing any insignia, but it's pretty clear that they're Russian. I really wouldn't want to be the Ukrainian soldiers standing behind this gate right now. They're a lot worse equipped, they're cut off from the mainland, and they're surrounded by Russian special forces. The stage had already been set. The Kremlin had been spreading lies in Russian media about the popular Euromaidan revolution for months. After the invasion by these little green men, the local government was disbanded in Crimea. Only then did Putin step forward deploy his marked soldiers, and brand himself as the savior of the Crimean people. They were just protecting Russians, after all, from the disastrous nation of Ukraine. Russia annexed the entire region for itself. This disinformation campaign was so powerful that people on the ground in Crimea who were witnessing it with their own eyes couldn't agree on what was happening. It was so powerful that it's broken families apart based on what you believe happened. Anna Zakharova lived in Crimea in 2014, and she remembers what it was like to try and talk to family members who live in Russia. It used to be in uh, a social network, Odnoklasniki. It's a Russian one, and this is where you keep in touch with your classmates and relatives, whatever. And um, someone, my aunt, um, who lives in Russia, when they saw in the news what's going on in Crimea, uh, they started writing, oh, what's happening there? Like, it's it's getting so dangerous. What's going on? I'm like, of course it's getting dangerous. Your troops coming in. Like, what's what's going on? And she's like, what? Are you, like, does the uh, um, U.S. State Department pays you? Are you an agent? I'm like, yes. <laughs> Every day they pay me. So I say this. Like, seriously, guys, I, I'm telling you what I have seen with my own eyes. And you're telling me what? the fake news that you watch in your TV and you believe them and not 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 us. So, and I don't communicate with them. In the years since, we've learned that automated social media bots and troll farms were an early part of these disinformation campaigns. This is how the Wall Street Journal cybersecurity reporter Dustin Bowles explains it. So Russian troll farms are essentially places where people uh, employed by the Kremlin work uh, nine to five, in some cases longer hours, to basically uh, inject disinformation into the internet ecosystem as much as they can and as effectively as they can. Um, this is something that Western intelligence analysts and officials sort of got wind of sometime in the mid-2010s that Russia was setting up these and while these social media bots and fake online news stories have played a role in the domestic and international dispersal of misinformation, in big parts of Ukraine and Russia, the TV still holds a powerful influence. 
Zakharova had been part of the Euromaidan revolution and knew that the Russian narrative was false. But she came to understand that her family living in Russia, they weren't just living in a different country, but in an alternate reality of the Kremlin's making. And when you're living in that reality, where on one hand you're brainwashed constantly that all the world is against you and NATO wants to kill everyone and grab your lands, and on the other hand supporting, like, we are so great, we're a warrior nation, we won the war, and, you know, all that. So it's very difficult to actually, I guess, think differently when everyone around thinks that, that way. And also knowing that if you start thinking differently, then you can get in trouble. The Kremlin's message is pretty simple. The Ukrainian nation doesn't deserve to exist. Putin sees himself as a strong leader who will bring Ukraine back into the Russian fold, uniting a long-ago divided ethnic group. Russia is all-powerful. They will save Ukrainians from themselves and from Nazi ideology. Or so the Kremlin's message goes. Zakharova now lives in Calgary, but she has continued fighting against these Kremlin narratives there, advocating for the freedom and independence of Ukraine. But the information war had begun, and the invasion of Crimea set the stakes for failing to take it seriously. But it didn't stop there. At the same time that all of this chaos was going on, Russian-backed militias started an uprising in the eastern part of Ukraine, in a region known as the Donbass. It's a war that simmered ever since. By 2019, we had already seen the expansion of disinformation campaigns leaking into the West. And I knew that the Ukrainian information war and the physical conflict were both important for the rest of the world to understand. So I traveled there, to Ukraine, as a freelancer. The investigation led me to a coffee shop in central Kyiv, where I sat down with the editor-in-chief of the English-language Euromaidan Press, Alia Chandra. We talked about how her entire news outlet was born out of the 2014 revolution and the ensuing information war. So during the Euromaidan revolution, I was shocked with the amount of lies coming out from Russian media and um, how my acquaintances in the EU were believing them, how these lies were infiltrating into mainstream media. And I thought that if I were to help the protests, I would do it in this way because I knew English. In the years after the revolution, the Russian disinformation machine was casting the post-revolutionary government as a fascist junta and took every opportunity to cast Ukrainians as xenophobic, racist, and especially anti-Semitic. These threads are still seen in the Kremlin's explanation for the current invasion, that they need to denazify Ukraine. This is what Putin said on Thursday. I will never give up my conviction that Russians and Ukrainians are one people, even though some people in Ukraine have been intimidated. Many have been duped by Nazi and nationalist propaganda, but some have deliberately gone the way of the nationalists and other Nazi henchmen. The fact that the current president of Ukraine is actually Jewish hasn't really gotten in the way of these disinformation narratives. And these stories were tough to dispel on an international stage for Ukraine, when their English-language media was nearly non-existent. At that time, actually, Ukrainian media did not have that many English-language um, versions. I mean, their English websites were very bad, and reporters, foreign reporters couldn't find them. So our translations of Ukrainian media actually were very important at that time, I believe. How have things changed since yeah. then? Because you guys are, are still going, and uh, obviously it's not... Uh... Well, um, I mean, during Euromaidan, Ukraine found itself in the middle of a Russian information war against Ukraine. And it was like our first time, so nobody knew what to do. But from that time, of course, things evolved. Um, the English language coverage is much better about Ukraine, though I cannot say that all the myths have been dispelled. But nevertheless, um, there are many more English versions of mainstream uh, Ukrainian outlets. So, And reporters have come to Ukraine and discovered it for themselves. So. I think it's gotten much better in terms of international coverage for Ukraine. Chandra, in addition to her duties as the editor-in-chief, co-authored a report in 2019 that was published by the Rusi Institute, which is one of the world's oldest defense and security think tanks based in the UK. The report combed through leaked emails from a Russian official named Vladislav Surkov. This guy is a legend of sorts. This is how Foreign Policy magazine described Surkov. 
the Grey Cardinal, Putin's Rasputin, the Kremlin's puppet master, a close advisor to Russian President Vladimir Putin, with, quote, near-mythical status for his hand in crafting the Kremlin's ideologies and its Ukraine policy. So this is the guy who suddenly had thousands of his emails leaked, giving a rare peek into the inner workings of the Kremlin. Um, so this hack was obtained by Ukrainian hackers. Um, call themselves the Cyber Alliance, and these um, emails have been widely um, seen as authentic by digital specialists. Surkov's emails showed that disinformation was a vital part of the Kremlin's war strategy. It described sophisticated forms of psychological manipulation of the Ukrainian populace that relied on social media to spread disgust with local politicians. It caused voter suppression, and they planted fake news stories. This is all stuff we know. But it also went far beyond that. Russia has access to a lot more tools than simply fake news or social media. It can influence political groups. It can influence, it create its own activist front groups. It can create terrorist attacks and, and etc. So all of these things, all of these actions that Russia is pursuing, the ultimate goal is to create this virtual reality and to um, nudge the target um, country into making political decisions that Russia wants. And so far, it's been very successful. Fake political fronts began popping up within different regions in Ukraine, all suddenly advocating for more autonomy. A move, Chandra says, was consistent with the idea that Russia wanted to continually pick off individual pieces of Ukraine one by one. And the reason for these regions demanding autonomy for themselves was also very thought out. So it would not have the word Russia and not have any connection to Russia. For instance, in the Zaporizhia Oblast, they um, undertook an ecological narrative. They said that a special status will help us solve our ecological problems. So for each region, this carefully crafted narrative was designed. And it was, if you just like look if you from a bird's eye view, there are all of these regions that are being led by puppeteer that are demanding all of the same thing and appealing to the president to give us a special status. So this is one of the examples what Russia did in Ukraine. In 2020, Putin sacked Surkov. But in an interview with Russian language media right after, he said he actually resigned because he was, quote, interested in working in the genre of counter-realism. That is, when and if it is necessary to act against reality, change it, remake it. End quote. In the same interview, he also said, and again I'm quoting, there is no Ukraine. There is Ukrainian-ness, that is, a specific mental disorder. End quote. And I think it's very, um, I think it's necessary for not only Ukraine to know these Russian tactics, because Ukraine really is the testing ground for Russia's hybrid war that it exports to other countries. And export it they did, most successfully in the documented interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. But that was far from the lone case. Also in 2016, Swedes were debating whether or not their country should join NATO. Heaps of disinformation began washing over the country. Social media posts falsely claimed things like the idea that NATO could launch an attack on Russia without the country's permission. Things like NATO soldiers have legal immunity and would rape Swedish women and not face the consequences. Now let me be clear, this is all garbage, but it still worked. It's difficult to pin the entire campaign squarely on Russia's shoulders, but the Kremlin has made limiting the expansion of NATO a key aspect of the country's foreign policy, and the disinformation campaign successfully threw a wet blanket on Sweden's potential membership bid. The growth of fake news and disinformation since 2014-2016 has been unimaginable. Just listen to this show's episode from two weeks ago about the Freedom Convoy. Interviews with some of the supporters plainly show how strong the grip of disinformation has become around the world, including right here. And certainly not all disinformation comes from Russia. But the Kremlin really brought this strategy back into vogue, and one of the key places it was tested and developed was in Ukraine. But you know, like in 2014, we were, we were struggling to get across the message that, you know, Russian propaganda, it's really important because the way 
the picture that you get about the world that's very important and Russian propaganda creates this picture also a part of reflexive control right they create a picture of the world for you to make decisions like at first Ukrainians were not understood why they're freaking out so much about this about the lies being told about their country now I think this understanding is much more um, present there are all of these conferences being held about fake news and okay and like legislature also being adopted but to varying extents of success <laughs> but nevertheless fake news is being seen as a problem and this all started from the Russo-Ukrainian war obviously Things have changed a lot since I spoke to Alia Chandra in 2019. I haven't spoken to her since the invasion began, but I did catch her on MSNBC. She's taking her kids out of Ukraine, but she plans to return and continue working as soon as possible. I think that Ukraine has finally understood that it's better to die than to live on your knees. And this is what, what we're doing basically now. Putin tells us that we don't exist. Putin tells us that we don't have a right to be independent, to have an independent government. He says our culture doesn't exist. Our language doesn't exist. Well, we disagree. We, we are a nation. We're an independent, proud nation. And we, we know how to, we want to live our own life, not just be appendage of this nuclear superpower that just wants to take over the world. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. The Russian state isn't even being particularly creative in this venture of creating non-factual alternate realities. The Kremlin simply seized on new technologies to revive old Soviet strategies from the dead. There's one campaign that was run in the 1980s by the KGB that is particularly instructive now. Operation Denver. Okay, well, Operation Denver was the Stasi codename for basically a disinformation campaign that had started by the Soviet uh, Secret Service, the KGB. And as part of this sort of disinformation campaign, uh, the KGB sought to spread the thesis around the globe that uh, the human immunodeficiency virus, which causes AIDS, right, acquired immune deficiency syndrome, uh, was developed by the US government as a biological weapon, by the military as a biological weapon at Fort Detrick, Maryland. That's Doug Selvage. He's a Cold War-era historian based at Humboldt University in Berlin. So Operation Denver began with a single newspaper article planted in a Soviet-funded outlet in India in 1983. There was an article published in an Indian newspaper. Uh, the name was Patriot. 
And there was this uh, article, and it said uh, the U.S. was somehow doing experiments at a laboratory in Pakistan,、uh, and that these experiments, which dealt with the AIDS virus, right, it could spread over the border to India. And this was sort of typical of Soviet active measures. They wanted to exacerbate the divisions between the United States and India. This conspiratorial and false connection between the U.S. government and the AIDS virus was then propagated by newspapers. Around the world, you get a place in a Greek newspaper. Then suddenly, the Soviet press reports, you know, oh well,、wow, there's this Greek newspaper. It's making this claim, and so normal journalists there would say, "Hey, guess what? We saw this interesting article in a Greek newspaper. Let's say in、uh, Tanzania. You know, here's this interesting article from a Greek newspaper. Can you believe that、uh, the Americans have, you know, been developing this bioweapon? They say, and then they would put it in their newspaper. So this was sort of, you know, one way they did it with the newspapers is sort of, you know. Washing their disinformation, and of course, the ultimate goal of such disinformation is to have the press and journalists just pick up on it on their own. Operation Denver was a disinformation campaign that was so successful that it's had lasting impacts to this day. And what would have taken years to disseminate during the Cold War can now be done in days, weeks, or months. Yeah, it was a little bit more difficult、um, <laughs> than today, right? Today, you can just sort of put it out there somehow, you know, make up a fake person or have real people or have troll factories or whatever. Use social media. This story isn't just important because it's history repeating itself. It's also important because Ukrainians became wise to these tactics years ago, and in fighting the information war, at least Ukrainians have largely been victorious. Something other countries could stand to learn from. Aaron Ehrlich is an assistant professor at McGill, and just last year he published a paper asking the question of whether or not the Kremlin's disinformation campaigns continue to be successful in Ukraine. In the studies we ran, we tested these various types of disinformation on people, but we actually found that. Even compared to folks in the U.S., for example, Ukrainians are pretty good at ferreting out disinformation. So the incomplete nature of Putin's attempt to invade Ukraine really, I think, galvanized a large part percent of the population to pay much more attention to what the Kremlin in Russia was doing and to be much more vigilant about what the kind of information they were consuming. And this isn't to say that disinformation isn't still being produced. On the contrary, pro-Kremlin social media accounts have almost tripled their daily output since the invasion happened. But the Ukrainians have built trusted networks to help figure out what's real and what's not. And all of this has been done with a lot of support from the European Union as well as other allies. For example, in a $24 million Canadian aid package in 2018. Two and a half million dollars was earmarked explicitly for countering disinformation. It's gone into digital literacy education and public service announcements. Other things that have helped: the rise of more independent media like the Euromaidan Press. But there's also been the establishment of some explicit fact-checking organizations: one called EU versus Disinfo, and the other called Stop Fake. Current articles from these sites read something like this. Ukrainian military using phosphorus bombs against Russian forces, fake. Ehrlich says the development of these kinds of resources has made it much easier, as a researcher at least, to see trends in disinformation campaigns and how they echo past Soviet moves. The topics, you know, they really focused on military, political. And economic disinformation, and then that they had different strategies for different targets in those areas. And so, a lot of it was to try to, you know, like many countries do, pump out positive stories. But the Soviet ones at the time tended to be less true than potentially other people's stories.、Uh, and and then ones that really tried to divide the West, which I mean, you can that is potentially where, until very recently, people have pointed to the success of Russian disinformation. But this was also a Soviet tradition where they wanted to pit, you know, NATO countries against one another. Pit Western democracies against one another because they wanted their enemies to be weaker. And then the economic one was economy drove the war machine and the propaganda machine. So you wanted to always make the you know the Soviet economy look better. All of those themes, I think, have you know if you look at EU versus disinfo, and you know that tracks. Except what we found that was different、uh, in in one other in one sense that that there has been much more of a focus on. 
casting people as, which is very clear in the Ukraine context, as Nazis or as right-wing stooges or stools. Um, all of that history comes out of a, a Soviet history, but has been adapted to modern times. But in the case of the downing of Malaysian Airlines Flight 17 in July 2014, yet another disinformation tactic was on display. The flight, carrying 283 passengers, was shot down by Russian forces who had moved a missile system into the eastern parts of Ukraine that, by then, were engaged in conflict. There's the downing of the Malaysian Airlines plane, which is this kind of dis distort, dismay, and distract, where you just inundate people with so much information and so much crud that that people they you want people to just turn off and and you you see this all the time in Russia it's very obvious where people say I don't want to talk about politics so you just want people to turn if you get people to turn off and you get get people to lose engagement then that's also in some ways a success on July 21st 2014 Russia held a press conference during which officials presented a slew of self-contradicting claims that laid the blame for the tragedy on the Ukrainian government. For Boeing 777, please pay your attention that up to Donetsk area, the aircraft flew in the determined corridor, and then it deviated from its route to the north. Bellingcat is an international group of open-source computer analysts and researchers, and their fact-checking of that press conference over the course of four years was made into a podcast series that depicts the full extent of the effort that it took to disprove all of Russia's claims. The Kremlin still denies involvement in the crash, but four Russian operatives are currently being prosecuted in the Netherlands. All four operatives were leaders of Russian militias that were operating in eastern Ukraine. Since the invasion of Ukraine, Canadian telecom companies are dropping a channel called Russia Today, more commonly known as RT from their airwaves. It's a Kremlin-funded digital and TV news outlet. Broadcasting live direct from our studios in Moscow, this is RT International. I'm Sean Thomas. Let's get right to the situation in Ukraine. And surprise, surprise, RT's very existence was prompted by, you guessed it, Ukraine. The news outlet was founded after an even earlier Ukrainian uprising in 2004, the Orange Revolution. But RT now operates in six languages across 100 countries on five continents. And I guess to their credit, they're at least honest about what they're doing. The editor-in-chief in 2018 admitted that RT was a part of Russia's information war. But to casual readers and viewers, it looks like a polished news site. And it's a bit of an enigma on the international media landscape because some of the journalists there have done good reporting. To a point. So they're given some amount of freedom with stories the Kremlin doesn't care about, but they're absolutely controlled in what they can say and other stories. And, you know, I think, I mean, it's hard to measure exactly what their influence has been, but they've certainly had a non-negligible influence on the media landscape because they have no bottom line in a way. They're funded as a, a Kremlin project. A recent feature on their website was titled, How Ukraine's Revolution of Dignity Led to War, Poverty, and the Rise of the Far Right. TV coverage has featured civilians proclaiming that there is not, in fact, any war in the eastern provinces, that it's peaceful. I've never been afraid for one day for the Russian army because they are simply not here. And while Ukraine is an obvious interest area of the Kremlin, RT also offers a simple look into how Russian influence is at play in Canada. For example, the TV and digital news streams picked up on Canada's freedom convoy and they had their own take on it. More like a dance party than, than a protest right now. I mean, to be honest with you, which has really been the case over the last few days. Look, Ottawa police say that the situation's volatile. The protesters here, the truckers determined... Ukraine banned RT from the airwaves in 2014. The European Union has now followed suit. And while the Canadian government has not banned the outlet, individual telecom providers are dropping the channel like a hot potato. In 2019... The National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians identified Russia, along with China, as two countries engaging in foreign interference in Canada. And wouldn't we just love to think that RT was the only issue? But the report also outlined that both countries have engaged in influence of mainstream Canadian media as well. Post-secondary institutions were also identified as targets. 
the level of tampering in Canadian affairs is not believed to have escalated to the level of direct election tampering to date. But Russia still loves to stir the pot on divisive issues. Wexit, for example. That's a topic Russia loves to boost. Pipeline debates are also a fan favorite. What implicates them is not... is a wider range of things than one would, you know, think, right? They they care about anything that would kind of divide populations that may be supportive of anti-Kremlin action. Uh, or and or if there's a side that may be more supportive of Russia, they're always going to try to divide the population that that isn't. They want to sow discord in those countries. They want those countries to be as unstable as possible. And so anything that looks like it might be stability promoting is an area that they want to intervene in. Perhaps unsurprisingly, many of those same channels on the social media platform Telegram that just two weeks ago were calling Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau a tyrant as the Freedom Convoy protests were broken up, those people have now switched tunes in favor of Russian President Vladimir Putin. There are memes that show that caring about Ukraine is just another sign a person is a sheep, as is wearing a mask. They're also sharing a video where a Ukrainian MP, in an entirely different context, and not to mention in her second language, says the words New World Order. Because we know that we not only fight for Ukraine, we fight for this new world order for the democratic countries. We knew that we are the shield for the Europe. Commenters are now using this as proof of the plethora of conspiracies that lie beneath that phrase. And of course, there's an endless stream of vitriol for the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky. The more you pull at this thread, the worse it gets. Justin Ling is now reporting for foreign policy that Russia has helped to create and disseminate a new conspiracy that is being boosted on QAnon channels, that Moscow is actually launching airstrikes on Ukraine in order to destroy bioweapon manufacturing labs. Sound familiar? The echoes of the KGB's Operation Denver are loud. Understanding Ukraine is important to understanding the disinformation system that the whole world currently exists in. No one knows that better than my friend. Uh, can't really tell you his name for physical and cybersecurity reasons, so he's going to remain anonymous, but we'll call him James. Uh, can you hear me? And am I officially on the record? Those are, I guess, my two first questions, because that'll affect some of the things I can turn it off for a second if you want. I talked earlier about Bellingcat, an international organization basically of cyber nerds who work to do verification of digital media, particularly pulled off different social media platforms, in an effort to fight disinformation. With the invasion of Ukraine, a similar type of group assembled on a more ad hoc basis to begin populating a live map that tracks Russian troop movements based on social media posts. And James is one of the people pitching in. I mean, the first invasion of Donbass uh, was actually officially confirmed by a Russian soldier on Instagram in 2014. So a lot of those posts, uh, for example, if I was posting the same image on Decontact, uh, Twitter, and, uh, you know, elsewhere, um, I can collate some of that using metadata, basically kind of a big um, matching set for the internet. So using a game, primarily Russian social media, some folks are on Twitter, some folks are on TikTok, some folks might be on uh, Instagram and the data quality varies by sources, but I can look at pretty much all of the contact data that's public. So I know this is all very commonplace to you and like you're talking to a toddler, but like, can you- oh, Sorry, the, the contact for those of you who don't know is basically a Russian kind of Eastern European, Central European, sometimes Central Asian Facebook. Um, it, it's, it's analogous to a Facebook clone. Um, it, Probably so James is a Canadian data scientist by day, volunteering his evenings to sort through the enormous piles of social posts that have become a hallmark of this invasion. You know, I think the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense and you know the state itself have to make the concession that it's a very fluid situation. Um, exactly what's going on where is, in some cases, a bit of a guessing game. But this is a relatively accurate representation of things we've seen as a signal. So I think the purpose is that you know if you're a say someone who's trying to leave Kiev in the past like three days. Um, you might have this map to give you a bit of comfort. If you're trying to plan, say, a family evacuation further west, to Volnia, um, you might be able to kind of determine, you know, where there are reports of an absence of Russian missiles or where you might be um, further away from critical infrastructure where you could kind of take shelter more safely in the countryside. Uh, so it could be used for that tool for kind of basically Ukrainians doing family planning, for lack of a better word. It could be used uh, as a communication tool 
um, with people covering it, you know, whether they're journalists, whether they're uh, other folks and kind of just layman's diplomats on the ground trying to deal with refugee issues, just knowing where certain conflict spikes are and where some flows of Russian troops or pictures of, say, columns of refugees heading west are coming from, that can allow certain levels of anticipation. The defiant spirit of the Ukrainians really captured people's attention in the days after the invasion. And I was dying to know, was that all propaganda or was some of that legit? If there are some very popular videos, I'm happy to opine on their um, truthfulness, one of which, for example, the TikTok instructions of uh, driving a BMP. Sorry, I'll help you translate. A BMP is a Soviet tracked military vehicle. And there's this TikTok of a young blonde Ukrainian woman showing people how to turn the vehicle on and drive it, you know, should they happen to find one abandoned in their travels. That's real. Um, the farmer hauling, it was either an MLRS or multiple launch rocket system or uh, an anti-aircraft system, but the farmer pulling that, that's definitely real. In a weird twist, disinformation birthed the need for these cyber sleuths like James. But beyond being able to verify viral videos or even figure out whether or not Russia shot down a plane out of the sky, these people are now able to give us a new access to the inside of a war that's never really been possible before. For example, James was able to give me the first glimpse I'd heard about what Russian soldiers were thinking and feeling about this conflict. One of the issues here with their logistics are um, dubious, I guess is the most charitable word I would use. Um, morale is at rock bottom. You have a range of folks. Uh, you know, you do have some places where Spetsnaz and some kind of more motivated troops are operating, absolutely. But like, there's a lot of places where it's bog standard kind of 19-year-old scared conscripts um, just rolling down the highway, so... You're getting a lot of signals if you were to kind of do a word cloud of verified posts and sentiment around those words in, you know, a thousand Twitter posts that are verified by Russian people or 2000 V contact posts or whatever. I suspect you'd see not the highest positive sentiment for where a lot of these troops know where they're going, because, I mean, the Russian army has a notorious tradition of hazing, has a notorious tradition of kind of, I guess, not great treatment of uh, personnel um, and, and force protection and kind of survivability of personnel and their comfort is uh, not even a thought. He was also able to offer his take on the complicated questions that have been raised about Canada's Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland and her grandfather's historical ties to Nazis. Uh, I think Christia Freeland's right that Russian trolls will signal boost her grandfather's history. She's absolutely right about that. Her grandfather was also a Nazi collaborator. I don't think that's a particularly controversial thing to say. CBC's Chris Brown reported in 2019 about a Russian TV documentary that claimed Canada was a country ruled by Ukrainian Nazi sympathizers. Foreign Affairs Minister Christia Friedland and Liberal MP Boris Shevznevsky and his family, dressed in their traditional Ukrainian vyshevankas, were singled out. And it was seen as a sign of, oh my goodness, uh, see, we told you they're infiltrating, they're, you know, it's just ludicrous. Russia's goal is clearly to unfairly paint all Ukrainians as white nationalists and neo-Nazis. But the narrative, like any good disinformation campaign, is built on a kernel of truth. But yeah, I'd absolutely say like one video that is absolutely confirmed is uh, the Azov Battalion was seen greasing. So when it was announced that Chechens and some of Ramzan Kadyrov's guys uh, were going to be coming to eastern Ukraine, um, there was immediately footage of the Azov Battalion greasing bullets with pork um, and referring to the Chechens as orcs. So, I mean, like, yeah, that's that's a real thing. Um, there's definitely connections between some, you know, like one of the people outed for um, basically running a white nationalist podcast in the Canadian forces. He was a Ukrainian People's Army sympathizer. Um, you know, you'd be lying to yourself if the Ukrainian People's Army and its political vestiges haven't penetrated Canadian society or Ukrainian society. You know, Stepan Bandera is still a guy who is very, very beloved in Ukraine. Um, so that's absolutely a real thing. Ukrainian nationalism is absolutely complicated. Battles for Ukrainian independence in the 20th century resulted in leaders like Stepan Bandera aligning themselves with the powers at the time. It just so happened the people they aligned themselves with were the Nazis. Bandera pledged his allegiance to Hitler and went on to campaign for the independence of his country with ideological and ethnic purity. A number of Ukraine's former military groups have similar historical ties. It isn't something that should paint the entire country or all who even fight for Ukrainian independence. 
But to James's point, it is something that some Ukrainians still idolize to this day, and that's a fact that Russia has grabbed onto and amplified. The distance from Ukraine to Canada has never felt so small. James and I chatted about what we reasonably thought it would take for Canada to come to terms and truly start dealing with the disinformation problem we have here. Did it only work in Ukraine because the stakes were so high? Because their country was slipping away? In Canada, uniquely right now, um, I think COVID is a very unique challenge in the Western world. And that's a whole other set of kind of um, psychological stuff to unpack. There's a lot of people who've done way better research on this than I ever could. But at the same time, um, in Canada right now, we do have the port of peak shooting and the inquiry around that. And my God, I mean, Sarah, like... Uh, you know, if you, if you believe the RCMP's line on that, I got a bridge to sell you in Brooklyn. Like, I mean, that's that that's um, that's a thing that I think is a, is a disinformational access that anyone from the Wu Mao to nefarious QAnon people to you know foreign psyops can use to um, pull at the threat. Because I think how disinformation fundamentally works is it's a grain of truth overlaid by a mountain of bullshit. Where you know, for example, like the you know if you soup to not to talk about the Kennedy assassination and the Warren Commission, yeah, you might have some follow-up questions. I'm not saying you're going to go full Oliver Stone, but you might. Um, that also eventually leads to JFK Jr. is going to come back and is secretly working with Trump for kind of the QAnon people, right? Like, so, so the thing about the Canadian misinformation environment is I always think it's easy to have misinformation when there's A, um, comfort, and B, malaise. So I think a lot of people in Canada are anxious and kind of trapped and feeling kind of COVID fatigued or whatever um, in some capacity. And People are more comfortable in Canada, right? Like, so they can entertain some crazy beliefs since a little bit cost-free. In Ukraine, like, things are just too real right now, and there's too much of a legacy of crazy bullshit Russian propaganda. Ukrainians might be wise to the tactics of the Kremlin, but those tactics are also intensifying in the midst of the current invasion. Last week, the CBC and the BBC, among other international news outlets, removed their correspondence from Russia as Putin passed legislation that criminalizes the intentional spreading of what they deem to be fake reports about the war. They've also blocked Twitter and Facebook. It is pretty clear that the information war is far from over. That is your Canada land. If you like this show, please support us. Click on the link in the show notes. Go to canadaland.com slash join. That's how it works. We need your support. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read every email that you send. We're on Twitter at canadaland. Our website is canadaland.com. We put out a terrific and funny newsletter that rounds up everything that we publish every week in case you missed anything. You can subscribe to that at canadaland.com. Go do that. This episode was reported by our senior producer, Sarah Larniuk, with production and research support from Cherie Sucherin, Jonathan Goldsby, and Cassidy Villabrun-Baracus. Tristan Capicione is our audio editor and our technical producer. Kieran Oudshorn is our managing editor. Music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like this show, please support us right now. Go to canadaland.com slash join or click on the link in the show notes on your podcast app. It takes just a moment. You won't regret it. 